Hi, I'm Neil Orford, and welcome to the Critique Journal Club monthly wrap-up. And this is the wrap-up for the month of June 2012. So June has seen some pretty interesting research published that's caught our eye. There's the STARTS trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine, suggesting increased mortality. Research on endocarditis and the timing of surgery. The VISION trial, looking at peak troponin following surgery with the associated 30-day mortality. There's some AOI research on intubation in emergent settings and the role of neuromuscular agents and the efficacy of a percutaneous tracheostomy program. There's a good review on Guillain-Barre, an article on transdamic acid and surgical bleeding effects, and a look at acute kidney injury and the effects of liberal versus conservative fluid therapy. So let's get started with starch. The 6S trial group, a Scandinavian critical care trials group, have published their study in the New England Journal of Medicine. This prospective multi-centre parallel RCT compared hydroxyethyl starch 130-0.4 to ringers in critically ill patients with severe sepsis, and they've reported an an increase in 90-day mortality, and that was 51% in the starch group versus 43% in the ringers group. They also reported an increase in requirement for renal replacement therapy and severe bleeding in the starch group. So the primary outcome was actually a composite death or dialysis dependence at 90 days, but only one patient in each group were dialysis dependent. So the primary outcome really was predominantly death. The separation in mortality groups in the two arms of the study occurred at day 20, indicating that these were late deaths. Overall, the patients appeared balanced at baseline, and the median cumulative volume of starch or ringers they got were 3 litres in each group. So this adds on to previous research from the German groups in sepsis suggesting harm with starch. Throw into it the issues around the Bolt scandal, um, raising questions about previous evidence in support of starch and once again we have concerns raised, significant concerns raised about the safety of this class of agents. So what should we do from here? Well, we should see the CHESS trial, a 5,000 patient RCT of starch versus saline in critically ill patients requiring fluid resuscitation conducted in Australia and New Zealand, published later this year. And perhaps that will help us answer the question for good. And that question is, is starch safe in critically ill patients or does it lead to an increase in mortality, renal failure and bleeding? In the meantime, an issue that we all have to address is should we continue to use starch in critical illness until chest is published or should we stop? And should we use it in general or should we stop? Moving away from starch and towards endocarditis, an area of medicine that causes a lot of problems for intensive care specialists. So there's an article published in the New England Journal looking at the timing of surgery for infective endocarditis. So when there is heart failure present, the recommendation is that early surgery should occur. But the role of early versus conventional or delayed surgery 
to prevent systemic embolism is not as clearly defined. And this is reflected by the differing recommendations of the American and the European consensus guidelines. This prospective trial was performed in Korea and they randomised 76 patients with left-sided native valve endocarditis and a high risk of stroke, and they defined that as severe mitral or aortic valve disease and a vegetation with diameter greater than 10 millimetres. And they were randomised to surgery within 48 hours or standard care. They excluded patients with moderate to severe congestive heart failure, heart block, a perivalvular abscess, or another indication for urgent surgery. The primary endpoint was a composite outcome of in-hospital death or clinical embolic events within six weeks. And this occurred less commonly in the early surgery group, so that was 3%, compared to the standard or delayed group, 23%. That's a hazard ratio of 0.1 with 95% confidence intervals of 0.01 to 0.82. The rate of embolism alone at six weeks, was 0% in the early group and 21% in the conventional group. At six months, there was no difference in mortality, but there was an increased risk of the composite outcome in the conventional group. So it seems that overall, early surgery was associated with better outcomes in terms of systemic embolism in this population. And that probably is an argument for early surgery in left-sided native valve disease at high risk of embolic phenomena. The vision study published in JAMA aimed to determine the relationship between the peak fourth-generation troponin measurement in the first three days after non-cardiac surgery and 30-day mortality. In over 15,000 patients, they found that the 30-day mortality was higher in patients with a peak TNT value of at least 0.02 nanograms per mil compared to less than 0.02. This peak TNT level remained an independent risk factor after multivariate analysis, and the cohort was typical for developed countries, that is, older cardiovascular comorbidities, major orthopaedic and general surgery. The median time to death was... 13.5 days in groups that had a TNT greater than 0.02. So, food for thought, TNT going up is associated with worse outcomes. There's a couple of airway-related studies that have been published last month of interest. The first, published in Critical Care Medicine, explores the issue of emergency intubation with or without neuromuscular blockade in a prospective observational study. It probably isn't a surprise that they report better viewing conditions and less hypoxia and procedure-related complications with neuromuscular blockers. They used rocuronium in 70% and sucks in 30%. And overall, they did not find an increase in the cannot intubate, cannot ventilate disasters. But it was observational and they were experienced airway doctors who had a choice about entering patients in the study. The second airway study, again in critical care medicine, is a before and after study looking at the effect of the introduction of a multidisciplinary percutaneous tracheostomy program on the outcomes and the service delivery at John Hopkins. 
They reported significant decreases in procedural complications, which they included airway injuries and physiological disturbances, improved efficiency, and a financial benefit due to better resource utilisation. So both these studies are of some interest because they discuss the issue of the management of the emergent airway in, in intensive care. What I thought was interesting is that both of them have reported transient hypoxia as a complication mixed up with all the other major complications, and I think that requires a little bit of thought. Is transient hypoxia really important, or transient hypotension, or is it the transition from the non-intubated to the intubated state without prolonged hypoxia and prolonged physiological derangement and better decision-making what matters? In the BMJ, a systematic review on the effect of transanamic acid on surgical bleeding was published. Overall, what they found was that it reduces bleeding and blood transfusion. However, the effect on thromboembolic events is not certain. So they're not saying that there's a problem. What they're saying is that all the studies to date, and there are 129 trials with 10,500 patients, show benefit, but they haven't all collected adverse event data, making it hard to work out if there is a problem about increasing thromboembolic risk. However, overall, it seems that it works, and it raises the question, should we be using it routinely in major surgery if we're not already? The renal investigators have published a paper in Critical Care Medicine that examines the association between mean daily fluid balance during the intensive care unit study period and clinical outcomes in patients enrolled in the renal trial, which you may remember was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, comparing conventional versus high-dose renal replacement therapy. The authors compared data from the renal patients with a positive mean daily fluid balance to those with a negative mean daily fluid balance. The characteristics of the positive patients uh, suggest that they were sicker as they were ventilated more, which is 78 versus 70%, had higher Apache 3 scores and SOFA scores, and were more likely to originate from the ED, had a lower pH, bicarbonate-based success. But they also had worse outcomes, with less renal replacement free days, less ICU free days, less hospital free days, and a higher mortality, 57% versus 32%. However, the association with increased mortality and worse outcomes persisted in the positive daily mean daily fluid balance group after multivariate analysis. So overall, this is an interesting study as it suggests that more fluid is associated with worse outcomes. Despite the multivariate analysis, propensity analysis, time-dependent modelling, Cox proportional hazards modelling, I guess the question remains of how much the confounding effect of severity of illness contributed to this. However, there's other research out there that suggests that a lot of fluid may not be good for you. If you remember last year, the FEAST trial from paediatric sepsis in Africa showed an increased mortality with more fluid. So we don't have the answer, 
But it would seem that we're developing questions around the issue of how much fluid is best in critical illness, opening the door for an RCT into conservative versus liberal fluid balance in patients either with acute kidney injury or in general in intensive care. So that's it for the June Critique Journal Club wrap-up. If you want to have a better look, come to the website and look at the abstracts and the comments, or better still, go and have a look at the articles yourself. See you next month. Thank you.